Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. This is part two of our conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Anthony Doerr. If you haven't heard part one yet, start there first. If you have already listened, we continue and journey to Rome. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. So, okay, let's jump to Rome because we have to talk about Rome. A lot of people listening live in Rome, and a lot of people who are listening love Rome. So you won the Rome Prize. I guess for people who don't know, maybe you should tell us what the Rome Prize is first. Sure. Um, Yeah, back when we were lucky enough to get it, writers didn't apply. Uh, So it was like a lightning bolt that came out of the blue. It was 15 or 16 years ago, 15 years ago. My wife was pregnant with twins. Uh, she, I was at Princeton for the years. So we were in a rental apartment. She goes, she delivers with a C-section. Maybe four hours later, I ride my bike through the snow back home to get the mail and get a bag for her to go back to the hospital. In the mailbox at our rental apartment is a letter from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, which used to partner with the American Academy in Rome. And you unfold it and it says, congratulations, you have been awarded... <laughs> a chance to live in Rome for a year at the American Academy. I didn't even know what it was. I had to Google it. I think there was Google. Maybe I had to ask Jeeves it. <laughs> yeah. So I go back. My wife is recovering from morphine and surgery. We have two new humans in our lives. And I'm like, hey, do you want to read this letter now? So thankfully, she was brave enough to do it. We had three months before we had to go, but we went over there. The boys are almost four months old. And they give you an apartment. They give you a little bit of money, and you get to be in this incredible spot, as many of your listeners know, on the top of the Janiculum Hill overlooking Trastevere. They have one of the most beautiful gardens in the city, Bass Gardens behind the academy, and it was just a remarkable remarkable experience for me just being around you know there's uh, i think there's 30 fellowships a year there used to be and 15 are scholars and 15 are artists and you just meet people from all over the country and now there are a lot of italian fellows there too so you meet people from all over italy and the library is a phenomenal place and there are really no expectations on you you have to do a couple public events but most of the time you're allowed to just work to kind of suffer and shine in your little studio and then now they they fit, they fed us, but about 12 years ago, Alice Waters helped take over the food at the academy, and I think it's called the Rome Sustainable Food Project. So now the food is so good there. You know, people really look forward to meals, and I think that also helps serve the mission of the academy because you get all these incredibly interesting people sharing a great meal, and you get to from a classicist who's like studying coins and then somebody who's just studying Etruscan tombs and then somebody who studies, you know, arches and aqueducts. And wow. it's just so interesting to get to talk to those people. And, you know, where I live in Boise, Idaho, I don't often get to have that experience at lunch. Usually I'm just alone over a book sitting on a bench. So it's a pretty incredible intellectual year. Since you did have just born twins, did you ever have a pause of should we not do this yes of course yeah and you know there's the you know here we have my wife's parents we have like the idea of somebody to come in off the bench if one of us is sick and there we go we didn't know anybody the smartphones didn't exist it's not like it was easy to find our way around and uh, so there were a lot of there's a lot of fear involved in going but uh 
you know, that's kind of life. You, you have to make these little decisions. Are you going to do something like this or not? And um, I'm super glad that we made the decision to do it. Yeah. So what surprised you about living in Rome? Anything? Everything? <laughs> yeah, everything. I mean, I have, I had never lived in New York City, so I had never lived, you know, there, that's the only American city that's not built around the automobile. And so I never lived in a place not built around cars. And the civilized nature of that, the absurdity of our lives that we rely on cars for everything to get food into our cities and to get food into our homes and to get our children to school and to visit friends or to go have a drink and then we still get in cars. You know, I think it's just such a backward way of thinking. I took that for granted all my life until I moved to Rome. And, you know, and then you're walking down streets where the car is such an anachronism. You're like, there's no reason a car should be trying to squeeze down this alley or be parked up against these walls. And it's so easy to remember the glory of these streets before the car. Uh, so that was a big one, just being able to walk. You know, of course, all Europeans and so many people listening are so much more familiar with this than even me, but just being able to walk after dinner, to walk to get your groceries, it's just a healthier, you're happier, you have less anxiety, you're outside more, you're seeing people here in our cars, we're really locked into these bubbles. And now with the way suburbs and exurbs are built, you drop your garage door. And if you want to, you can avoid looking people in the face. And that's not how we evolved. That's not what we were meant to do. Did you ever consider staying? Uh, we did. My wife grew up in Boise. This is home to her in such a deep way that I think that would be pretty challenging for her. She's, a, a incred she's always up for anything. But uh, we were ready to, uh, when you don't know the language very well, and there's so many strikes and holidays and things that like, you know, we're like, okay, we have a liter of milk in our tiny fridge. Like, we'll be fine. I'll get some tomorrow. And then you go to the stores the next day. Oh, every store in Rome is closed today. Oh, the buses <laughs> are on strike. So we were ready to be able to, like, understand everything happening around us a little better. You know, that's the nature of being an expat. But when you're trying to buy diapers and baby food and deal with life and a kid has a fever and uh, it's certainly much more helpful when you could speak the language and you know the culture. Not to mention cobblestones on a stroller. Not the easiest thing in the world, exactly. right? <laughs> yeah, we carry our stroller up these flights of stairs all the time. You know, you get pretty good shape moving those kids around. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so you wrote a whole book about it. And I think that writing, when you write something down, it does have a way of solidifying a, a big experience into a certain amount of memories, you know, or a certain contained memories. Do you think that what you remember about that year comes from what you wrote about it? Or are there memories that are still just as bright that appear nowhere in your writing? Yeah, that's a really lovely question. It's really similar to photographs. I think about that with trips. You know, I love to look back through photographs or I have my uh, background on my computer. Every hour just changes through my library of pictures. So you see pictures and like, oh, yeah, we went to Hawaii with the kids and look how cute they were. But in some ways, those are altering or changing your memories of places. You know, I'm not really on social media, thank God, but I do see how you might be tempted to portray one vision of yourself on social media, which is like me and Cinque Terre, me and Venice, look how happy we are. Here we are with cocktails, look how tan we are. And, you know, you're not necessarily gonna post like, here I am screaming at my husband because we're confused in the train station and pizza, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, of course they could tend to maybe gloss up or writing about something can tend to gloss up your memories, but 
for me, especially that year, it was, I was so sleep deprived that I felt like when we got back to Boise, if I didn't work hard and hustle and almost like meditate over that experience, it would have left me. In many ways, I wrote that book just as a way to kind of leave a record for my sons and for myself, hopefully maybe for my wife, although I don't want to speak for her of like what that year felt like. And, and so in that way, the writing is quite valuable, even if it does codify or cement your memories in a certain way. You wrote a book about Rome. You wrote another book set in France. Does that make when you go back to Rome now or if you go back to France or certain parts of France now, did it change how you feel about those places? Especially in the story that you invented, that you came up with out of your own head, that you didn't live. Does it change the, your experience of the country? Yeah, I, mean, I think it does. Certainly, the you know, the, my experiences in Saint-Malo, you know, I had gone there three separate times researching the book. Uh, you know, we had very little money and I was taking this huge risk. You know, my wife is at home at that point. The kids are eight or nine and I'm going over to Europe and I have no idea if I'll be able to pull this book off, you know, and it's raining and you're like, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's such a, a risk to try to assume that I can know anything about what people's lives were like in 1944's bombs are raining over the city. And can I even finish this huge messy thing I've built for myself? And we're eight hours apart. And my wife's like, I hope you're having fun. This is an expensive <laughs> trip. So there's always some kind of pressure on yourself. And then to go back and the time when we went back, they give me like this medallion of the city. And there's like tours of Saint-Malo now, like built around the book. And you can have some app that like guides you through the streets this character walked. And you know the mayor's got me on the roof of the chateau. And so of course it changes your experience. In some ways I like, I prefer to be the invisible person. I prefer to just be Tony Door walking around the streets. And sometimes now when I travel, I have to be Anthony Door where like there's people taking pictures of you or you have to give an interview. And that does change your experience in some way. So sometimes, you know, if you're doing trips for work, they're a little less fun than like a research trip for writing or, you know, you're just traveling with your family. And in that way, it doesn't really change. You know, you're just older and maybe a little more experienced, but you're still seeing new places. But the world's changing really fast, too. I mean, tourism is coming more and more accessible to people. It's not just privileged white bald guys like me that get to go now to Europe. And, you know, our experience in Rome was, I mean, the one thing we should probably talk about, or you probably talk about in the podcast a lot, is just over tourism. It's mm. I mean, Airbnbs are everywhere. Now, like half the old workshops in Rome are now places where people store their luggage, <laughs> you know, like there's after you check out of your Airbnb. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, it's changing. And that's not, I'm thrilled that people are getting to see the world, except for the carbon footprint. I think it's exciting. It increases understanding and cultural awareness. But, uh, you know, Venice, Cinque Terre, there are places that Italy's got to make really complicated decisions about how to limit the number of human beings moving through these places. Yeah, to make them inhabitable. But I bet if you were to go back to Trastevere now, you'd probably find some of the same people standing in doorways, smoking cigarettes, chatting back and forth across the alleyway. Totally, feeding the cats. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's not a lot of the people at the academy. You know, the great thing about the labor system is there's so much more consistency in Italy. A lot of the people at the academy that were there 15 years ago were there when we went back this spring. Uh, you know, people, those are lifetime jobs for them. And 
Uh, it was so nice to see this family again, all these folks that we knew and knew the babies when they were tiny. Now see our big, giant 15-year-old boys walking around. Wow, amazing. So can you give people advice who would love to win that award? Is there like a key that you figured out? Is there something you did right that got you that opportunity? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. <laughs> I, You know, there's so many different fields and there's different juries for each field, architecture and landscape architecture and painting and sculpture. So, no, I don't really have any insight into the winning application, but I'm sure persistence and love for what you do is vital. And, you know, I think it's also important to remember that you can, if you're committed to creating stuff, you can do that almost anywhere. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, how wonderful if I could just go to Rome and write for a year, but I could probably be more productive than a motel in Montana for $69 a night. You know, I think... What it really takes is disappearing into your work and the other trappings like getting to talk to super smart people and see incredible paintings and walk through the streets. Those are all really a procrastination from the important thing, which is just grinding with your imagination in the page. So go back to short story really quick, since this is the the book that's coming out, the 2019 Best American Short Stories how many stories did you have to read? I know 20 end up making it in the book this round, at least. How many stories would you guess that you read? Yeah. Oh, I think I know. It was like right around 150. But the series editor, so the Best American Short Stories has been around, I think, 100 years. I'd have to look it up. It's been around a long time. And every year, a series editor, she will read pretty much every short story or a piece of every short story published in North America that year. And then she'll forward on her favorites to a series editor or the, I'm sorry, the uh, guest editor changes every year. So it's a great privilege to get to do it. It's kind of like some literary volunteer service, but it's amazing because I was stuck reading a lot of old dead writers and uh, especially living where I live, I don't necessarily get to go to see like the young, new uh, debut writers. So, you know, I got to see what's out there, what's being published now. And, you know, after a while, you start to realize, oh, crap, I have to evaluate these things. And that drains some of the joy out of it. But for the most part, you're like, look how many beautiful voices are out there singing about our contemporary moment right now. So, you know, you get to read somebody from Ursula K. Le Guin, who had died before I got to read that story. There's a long novella I picked for the book to Jim Shepard, who writes these wonderful historical novels to new writers I'd never heard of, like Weka Wang. She has this beautiful short story in there that just it's called Omakasa. And it's really just describes moment by moment what it's like to not live with white privilege. And the way she uses fiction to do that is so interesting to me. Uh, anyway, there's a whole host uh, of 20 stories. And I, I think, I hope every year that collection is a way to remind readers of the elasticity of the form of what can be done with a short story. And I think it's a great kind of book to take on a trip because you get 20 voices singing inside one little package. And it really gives you a sense of what's out there, what kind of stuff people are making right now. Hello, I'm Tiffany. And I'm Katie. Breaking into the show really quick so I can ask Katie a question. Yes? So as you know, Katie, we're challenging our listeners to help us reach a financial goal of $1,000 a month on Patreon. We are. And you know what, Tiffany? If everyone listening pitched in $5, 10 even $20 a month, we would make that goal in a heartbeat. So my question for you is, why do we need $1,000 a month? Well, $600 to $700 of that is covering our monthly costs. That's 
web hosting fees, taxes, advertising, equipment charges, you know, the day-to-day expenses that keep a weekly show running. So what about the other 300? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, Tiffany, that we've been doing this show for over five years and haven't ever really been paid. Have you noticed? I have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm hoping that the person listening to my voice right now will love the show enough to wish that their hosts got paid for making it too. So $150 a piece seems like a modest start, don't you think? I think it would be great. It would. So if you love the show, please support it and all the hard work and effort that goes into making it. Netflix can survive without you. We can't. So visit patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast and become a donating member of our community. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the bittersweet life podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes. And now back to the show. Reading 150 different short stories from a year. Were there themes emerging? Were there definite themes that people were going after in all of these short stories? Yeah, you start to just naturally pick them out as you're reading, of course. Uh, you know, I felt like Disconnection was one, certainly uh, technology ended up picking a story uh, that's very much about a young girl who's lost in the world of technology. And uh, she's almost like losing the boundaries between real life and her social media life. And as a parent of teens, I think in particular that sung to me, that story is called Protozoa. Also maybe fear, totalitarianism, uh, fear of the government. Uh, those things are bleeding through certainly in our contemporary moment. Uh, what is truth? You know, as I was reading those stories, it was, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings, and then it was the president's lawyer, Michael Cohen, testifying. And so what is the truth was kind of echoing through those stories, at least in my head as I was reading those. Yeah. And with reading 150 stories, I would imagine it gets hard to keep track, you know, as you're going along. What makes a story memorable to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that was one of my criteria for what what I would pick is which ones I would remember three or four days or two weeks later would surface kind of from your subconscious into your conscious mind when you're going for a walk. You're like, oh yeah, that story's really staying with me. I think that that kind of durability is one real measure of art, something you can read and then read again later in your life and or a piece of music or a movie and it resonates again. That's a sign that something will last. Um, and, and, you know, I think for me, it's care and language, obviously it's of course having a, a bright voice, but it's also trying to maybe push against some rule. So a lot of the times I felt like I was drawn uh, to stories that somehow resisted overtly or, or subvertly some rule that, uh, you know, is often bandied about, about short stories. Like you can only have one protagonist. So I'd be drawn to a lot of these stories that tried for multiple protagonists or you know, don't have your character wake up in the beginning of a story. You know, so of course, anytime a writer tries that stuff, I love it. I want to see, how people are breaking rules and how they might be able to pull it off. Yeah, it's like Paul Auster's Man in the Dark, where it just starts with a guy waking up in a hole. Yeah, there's plenty of classes happening all around us right now where they're like, do not have your character wake up at the beginning of the story. Uh, My instinct is to be like, okay, that's what I'll try. That's what I'll do, yeah, first thing. So what would you say is the place for storytelling in our lives right now? Oh, gosh, I think humans crave it so much. You know, we might be looking to different technologies for it than the written printed word, but uh, storytelling is what humans crave. It's how we 
build meaning in our lives. And there are some arguments that that is what has allowed our species, Homo sapiens, to excel as storytelling. You know, that's what's allowed us to spread around the world that we've built big, big stories, whether they're religions or myths. Um, you know, that's what's allowed us to unite together. And I think storytelling is a way to step out of the confines of your own skull and enter the life of another person. And whether you're doing that through podcasts or radio or the film or a very good TV show or, of course, novels and short stories and poems, I think that's how we build a more connected and uh, peaceful and kind world. So in that way, story has to do with love. I, I think so. It's probably self-serving because that's what I do for my job. But yeah, <laughs> I believe in that storytelling can hopefully increase the quantity of love in the world. Sure. Okay, I have one question left for you. Another thing from your introduction, going back to your childhood, when you were writing these stories, very free um, stories, inventing whatever you wanted. And you say that you had this notion that even though you thought it was impossible to be a writer, that someday someone would come along and you'd be long dead and they'd go through your drawers and they'd discover all these stories and think this man was a genius or something. You didn't say it that way. That's me in my, my own words. And as an artist type myself, I have had, when I was a young person, that same level of grandiosity. I used to write what if I could write the story that changed the world? Uh, what is that? I guess is my question. It's just youth, of course. That's just what youth is. You know, you think that you're the center of your own movie and everything in life kind of tells, reminds you as you get older, oh, you know, you're not. You know, that's like the journey of all humans. We used to think that like, oh, the sun went around the earth. And, uh, you know, we thought humans were the, you know, the pinnacle of evolution and, you realize, oh, actually, none of those things are true. You kind of remove yourself from the center of your life. For me, parenting, having a kid was the best lesson in that because your own discomfort, your own hunger, none of those things end up mattering much once you have a kid. And it reminds you, you're just one in a chain of human beings. And your only real duty in life is to be as kind as you can and leave this place uh, at least as intact, you hope, as it was when you got here. I you know I was just trying to poke fun at myself and that grandiosity that you feel as a young person. You know, you feel like when you're putting sentences down on a page, you're the first person to ever do that. <laughs> it takes a, a little while to remind yourself. You're like, oh, I got a long way to go. And yet, and yet, the belief in yourself it would take to go to France and leave behind two twins and your wife to, and be like, I am going to figure out how to put this book together is astounding in a way the artistic process and the belief that something will come of it and that it won't have been a waste of time. Yeah, there is something really self-defeating about the, you, you have this like field of stars in your mind. And when you use language to put it down, the language is never as good as you think as your imagined version of it. And so that can, I think, crush a lot of artists before they ever get started. You plan some gorgeous mural in your mind, but when you start to execute it, it's not coming out as well as you hoped. But that, that's the point you need to make that leap and just keep trying and accept that, that words are just estimations and the colors are never going to be as rich as you think because in the act of making it, something else might happen. Something else might transform it and you owe it to yourself to do that so that you're not a person living with regret when you're 85 you know, on, in the rocking chair. Boy, I wish I would tried painting that mural or boy, I wish I had written that book of poems I wanted to write or written that song or quilted that quilt. 
go make those things, go try it and give yourself the permission to fail. Anthony Doerr is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of All the Light We Cannot See, which also won the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction. We also talked about Four Seasons in Rome, if you want to seek out the Rome book. And coming up next, the 2019 Best American Short Stories, which is coming out in October. Thanks again for taking the time. Thanks so much, Katie. It was great to talk to you. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at The Lost Laboratory with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. <laughs>